in the music and in the hymns, the truth about Christ, our redemption. Look forward to the day that we fly away to be with Him. As we turn to Luke chapter 9, we'll be picking up in verse 51. I hope you all don't want to fly away after this one. As you turn there, I'd like to read a summary description of the reception that the Messiah received in Israel. This is recorded by the Apostle John. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Well, as we've observed now many months of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, we've been studying this in Luke for several chapters, a a very comprehensive ministry throughout Galilee. We recently learned how a majority of his disciples have now defected from him. The harder the teacher or the teaching became, and the stricter the requirements on discipleship, uh, the demands that came with following Jesus, many if not most, then fell away. Peter and the eleven, however, as well as a number of other devoted men and women, continue to follow Jesus. When Jesus asked the twelve if they were going to go away as the others did, Peter simply answered for them all, responding, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And in Luke 9, verse 51... It's possible to to sense a transition now in Jesus' mindset. In fact, in verse 50, it's a good reminder for all of us, as Jesus told his disciples, He who is against you, or is not against you, he is for you. You know, there's no lack of people standing against Jesus. No lack of people who oppose Jesus and subsequently oppose those who follow Jesus. That message of a a crucified and dying Savior, as well as a fiery judgment on the wicked, it's just just foolishness to those who are perishing. They won't receive it. So we don't need to conjure up more enemies. There are plenty out there. There are plenty who oppose Christ, His cross. They're willing to mock Him. When the day came, they even spat on Him. They struck His back. They plucked out His beard on that long and lonely road to Calvary. In fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, Jesus came to his own. He presented himself to them as their Messiah, as their king. He's repeatedly now offered them the kingdom over many months, and the vast majority have not received him. He came to his own, and they did not receive him. So now Jesus transitions to accomplishing that which he was originally born to do. As the angel told Joseph in Matthew 1, verse 20 and 21, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's why he came, to save his people from their sins. So the time now is drawing near. 
redemption draweth nigh. And redemption can only be achieved through Christ offering himself as a sinless lamb of God in a sacrifice at Jerusalem. He is the one who takes away the sin of the world. He will become a a propitiation. He will be a satisfaction, that is, for the wrath of God that will be poured out on sin for all those who will believe on him. That's his goal. That's the turn that he's taking now in ministries. Not going to focus near as much on proclaiming the kingdom. They have rejected him and his kingdom. Um, It's a significant turning point in his ministry that Luke records. He's already told his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to be uh, treated uh, badly by evil men and then crucified, die, but he will rise again on the third day. And even when Peter, we saw him try to intervene, Remember at that point he tried to intervene and say, no, by no means, Lord, Jesus rebuked him. Nothing is going to stand in his way on this long and lonely path to the cross. He's determined to go to Jerusalem in Luke 9, verse 51. If your translation reads, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, that's even better. For it appropriately echoes the prophecy read to you earlier from Isaiah chapter 50. He set his face like flint, to go to the cross. The implication is, at this point in time, uh, Luke records on this long and lonely road from here, at this point in Scripture until Luke 19, verse 28, will be a time where he focuses on the cross, the preparation for the cross, up until Luke 19, verse 28, when he enters Jerusalem triumphantly on a donkey colt. This is the section that we're looking at now. The, the Bible Knowledge Commentary, one that is written by Dallas Seminary faculty in joint, writes this about this section. It says, This lengthy section of Luke comprises two parts. The rejection of Jesus by most on his journey toward Jerusalem. And second, Jesus teaching his followers in view of that rejection. The previous section dealt with Jesus' authentication in his Galilean ministry. In this next section, authentication was no longer the issue. The issue was now acceptance. Jesus was not accepted by most of the nation. Therefore, he began to teach his followers how they should live in the face of opposition. Unquote. Living in the face of opposition. Is this something that Christians in America need to brush up on is it important for us oh boy folks unless a significant uh, moving of the holy spirit and a genuine spiritual revival um, happens in this america in america the church needs to be prepared to stand in the face of opposition the the increasing face of adversity and rejection for our beliefs we have to stand against the ungodly as they resist christ as they resist his holy word, as they resist his commands, and as they resist his followers, the Christians, his chosen. That's a fact. But we we can take comfort in the words that Jesus said, remember if they hate you, they hated me first. And, And that resistance to Christ is demonstrated already in Samaria, as I read to you starting in verse 51 of Luke 9. 
says, when the days were approaching for his ascension, that means ascension to heaven, he was determined, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him, because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Credible sources that have mapped out the chronology of Christ's life uh, date this now. They, they mark this time as Jesus' departure from Galilee to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. You see that in John chapter 7. As Jesus goes down for the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles was a fall feast. Occurred in the fall, usually in late September or early October. So the timing of his departure from Galilee to Jerusalem would be right about now. September. Early to mid-September as he departs to go to Jerusalem for the feast. He's leaving Galilee. His crucifixion, of course, will occur at Passover. That's the time period where we generally... Uh, at Passover there every year, celebrate Easter. So um, between today, September 9th, and Easter of 2019, slightly over six months, that's the amount of time Jesus has left. That's the amount of time remaining to teach his disciples. Don't get the impression it, it took him six months to get to Jerusalem. Uh, actually, his remaining course This road takes Jesus in and out of Jerusalem a couple times, even back to Galilee at one point and to other locations. The phrase that he set his face to go to Jerusalem better indicates an adjustment of his focus, a change of his focus from preaching the kingdom to setting his mind of what he needed to accomplish before he hung on the cross in Jerusalem. He set his face on that. He's turning the page on his earlier teaching ministry and now focusing on preparing his disciples to endure what they're going to see. The opposition to him, the resistance to Christ. And then, of course, his death and the subsequent resurrection and ascension into heaven. It should be no surprise the resistance begins immediately as he goes towards Jerusalem. As they seek to cross the region called Samaria. Obviously, This isn't the same village that received him earlier in John chapter 4, the woman at the well where the town received him. Obviously a different village than that. Um, Also, as we we go through this, it'd be be good to recognize that there were a lot of people traveling to Jerusalem. A lot of Jews traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem at this time uh, on, on pilgrimage. I have a map just to remind you of the direction that would need to be taken uh, from Galilee. You either had to go from Galilee way in the north. Look at Capernaum, way at the top of, uh, of the map there, and having to go through Samaria or around Samaria in order to get down to Judea and then, of course, Jerusalem. So you had two choices. You either went through Samaria if you wanted to go the short way, or as some of the real religious elite would do, they would travel around Samaria, which took them quite a long distance. Most common Galileans would just endure the path through Samaria. Experience traveling through that region is so much shorter than going all the way around. But because Samaritans knew that the caravans now 
were going to the Feast of Tabernacles, headed to Jerusalem to worship, it provoked a resentment from them. They, they didn't like that. Uh, it's because, just as the woman at the well told, told Jesus, you know, we Samaritans worship at Mar- Mount Gerizim. Well, you people, referring to the Jews, you people say that Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. See the conflict there? The sight of the Israelites now traveling through Samaria, it only rubs salt in the wound that they worshipped at Mount Gerizim. That signified the false worship of the Samaritans. For as Jesus responded to that woman in John chapter 4, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain or nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And he told her, you worship what you do not know. We, meaning the Jews, worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So Mount Gerizim, it's in, in many ways the epitome of false worship of the Samaritans. It's idolatry. And, and since so many of the Jews now are traveling through Samaria... Um, obviously the Motel 6 is all booked up. Therefore, Jesus, in verse 52, sends messengers ahead. And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him and make preparations for, for Jesus to come in. You know, he still had a sizable group of disciples. Um, he has at least 70, right? Because he sends them out at the very beginning of chapter 10 in pairs. So he's got at least 70 he'll send out in pairs at the beginning of the next chapter. He will send them out, get this, to discern which towns will receive him and which won't. So Jesus is taking precautions here to first determine whether this village is even going to accept them before he takes the caravan in. So he sends some people ahead um, before he takes his disciples into an atmosphere that might be a conflict. There might be animosity towards them expressed. And and as for this village in verse 53, it says, They did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Notice the reason that they didn't receive Jesus. It wasn't that they didn't have food. It's not that they didn't have provision or water or even a place to lay down. Uh, The reason is given that Jesus was traveling toward Jerusalem. And that was to attend the feast. They're like, no, we, got, we, we aren't going to support your, your trip to Jerusalem to worship the true God of Israel. And, and as Jesus set his, his face then to go to Jerusalem, as he's made his mind up to go, the first obstacle to him, the first obstacle to his disciples is a conflict with idolatrous worship. That's the first resistance to Christ and his followers That's the first hindrance to them even receiving the provision that they need. In essence, the village is is refusing service to the Christ followers, right? Don't come in here. We don't want to see you. We don't want to hear from you. We don't want to hear about your plans and going on to worship. Folks, don't, don't think that can't happen in America. Don't think that doesn't happen in America, or won't happen in America. Pagan idolaters, well, they'll demand that Christians bake their cake. They'll demand that a Christian photograph their wedding, look through the lens at what something a Christian wouldn't want to look at. 
They'll demand that we perform or pay for or, or some way facilitate uh, their abortion. But then they themselves, well, they retain the right to refuse service to anybody they want, even if it's just given a hamburger. That's what they're running into here. False idolatry standing, attempting to stand in their way. Why do they behave that way? In America, why do they be, people behave that way toward Christians? It's because of what we believe. It's because they worship a false god whom they don't know. And they realize in their hearts that we worship what we do know. We know the true God of the universe. Um, they have a different mountain that they worship on. A different mountain. I think it's that might, one of them might be those white letters up there out in L.A. that say Hollywood. That's the mountain of their worship. And they don't like the way that we worship. And in their hearts they realize we, we worship what we know. They worship what they don't know. They mean, that means they realize they don't have any basis for their religion. They don't have any sovereign book given by God in order to govern their lives. They resent us for that. It was the same with the, uh, Jesus and Israel. The place of worship was Jerusalem. They had the scriptures that told them where they are to worship, when they are to worship, uh, what God would receive as sacrifice. Uh, Jesus and his followers were simply following the Old Testament scriptures. It's what they know. That conflict still we endure today. Us worshiping what we know versus other people worshiping what they don't know. And, And don't think that, you know, because you're traveling with a band of maybe 150 people, maybe 150, uh, that it can't get lonely. We know Jesus has at least 70, probably significantly more than that, um, but it surely was just a tiny fraction of the 5,000 men, maybe up to 15,000 if you include the women and children that we saw uh, just a short time before. This band that's with Jesus now is very small. Don't think that just because we have one another... There's 150 here on a given Sunday. Don't think that just because we're together that as the world starts pressing in on us and starts pressing in on our beliefs and increasingly marginalizes Christians that it isn't going to get lonely. It's going to get lonely. As, as the world presses in around us and marginalizes us, marginalizes us for what we worship. It rejects us. Do you understand what I'm saying? is that we can be together and stand in Christ, but it can still get lonely. Don't, don't be surprised in the day that we get very lonely and, and seems like we're the only ones out here that believe what we believe because everyone else is resisting what we believe. A group like this size can still feel lonely when the world rejects you. And, and there's, there's a couple of ways we can respond to that as Christians. There's a couple of ways. Uh, this journey on earth, this, this sojourn that we're in, knowing this is not our home, this is not where we belong, we're just pitching a tent here and there, and we're waiting for God to call us home. Um, there's a couple responses we can have when this happens, and, and they're right here in our text, believe it or not. In verse 54, we see the approach of James and John. Here it is. Lord, do you want us to command fire? To come down from heaven, to like, like to consume these guys. 
That's option number one. Have you ever felt like that? Really, when you're rejected because of your beliefs or people marginalize you or laugh at you or mock you or whatever, let's be honest. Do you ever like, feel that? That's the flesh. That is the flesh when we're being treated badly and we're stirred to anger. It's called succumbing to the flesh. That's what James and John do here. Undoubtedly, uh, Undoubtedly, they were emboldened. Remember, they just saw Elijah. James and John were both up on the holy mountain. And they had just seen Elijah with Jesus during the transfiguration back in verse 30. That probably motivated them a little bit to suggest, you know, you know, that worked pretty good for Elijah. You know, maybe we should try that here. Uh, James and John are thinking back to uh, an event with Elijah back in 2 Kings chapter 1 where a king named Ahaziah, he he was the king of Samaria, where are we at right now? They're passing through Samaria, who had fallen ill, and he sent messengers to inquire with the pagan deity Beelzebub, all right? So pagan idolatry, that's that's the balance that that Elijah was dealing with, And, and Ahaziah sent them to inquire as to whether he's going to recover from his illness or not. So God sent Elijah to intervene with the messengers sent by the king, the king of Samaria. And in exchange, Elijah came down and uh, he called down fire from heaven and consumed two companies of 50. That's what James and John are thinking back to. That's what Elijah did. That's what he did when he was in Samaria. And that's what he did when he encountered pagan idolatry. Isn't that what we should do? Notice the parallel. And they felt... You know, theirs was was the appropriate biblical response, they're probably thinking. This is what we see in the Bible. Isn't that what we should be doing to those who reject God and practice pagan worships? Folks, this is one of the reasons that Port St. Lucie Bible Church leans dispensational, all right? There are differences between Israel and the church. Just because you see it in the Old Testament doesn't, especially with Israel, doesn't automatically mean it applies to the New Testament church. The rebuke that they earn from Jesus is warranted because they should have noticed over the last several months. They should have noticed. He could have just told them, you know what, when have you ever seen me do that? Never. James and John, when have you seen me do that? Why would you think I would do that? How long have you been with me now? A couple of years. James and John should have recognized Elijah's was a unique, unique response to an isolated situation in a period far earlier, an earlier time. Jesus could have said to John, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? When have I ever taught that? Fortunately, we as Christians enjoy uh, an abundance uh, of scriptures, Clear understanding provided through plentiful verses such as the one found in Romans 12. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And he closes that section by, do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. That pretty much summarizes what we believe today in the church, and we have many, many passages that uh, teach us that. 
Calling down fire from heaven, that's option number one. We don't take that option. It's not the right option for us. What we know from verse 55 is that Jesus turns and sternly rebukes James and John. All right? That is sufficient in itself to make the sound theological conclusion that we don't behave that way, all right? What we don't know, hang with me here a little bit, what we don't know is if the content of Jesus' rebuke found at the end of verse 55 and at the beginning of verse 56 is present in the original writing of Luke. Don't let this rattle your cage, all right? Hang with me. I think you'll understand why in a moment. The statement attributed to Jesus, the rebuke attributed to Jesus, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them, may not be original to Luke. This is one of those isolated, rare isolated situations, occasions, where we encounter a statement that might have crept in through a scribe somewhere. This is so rare, actually, the last time that we encountered this was in November of 2015 when we were studying through 1 John. It shouldn't rattle us. Um, that was three years ago the last time we encountered this, something like this. You probably want to know why theologians think that. Why they would cast doubt on this verse. And I'll try and make the explanation brief, and you can make the decision up for yourself. Um, but it's important that we discuss it, because other people are going to ask you. And you're going to go, I, I don't know. And they'll say, look how many things are added to the Bible. I'm like, what things? And they'll point, you know, I, I don't know. No, we, we know. We know. Um, if you have questions remaining afterwards, I'm more than glad to try to answer them. This is going to be my best shot. All right? When the Catholic priest Erasmus of Rotterdam created the Textus Receptus, that was in the year 1516, that became the first complete Greek text of the Bible in centuries. Because everything that the church had been using, or the majority of the church had been using, was in Latin. In fact, there are some churches today still using Latin, if you can believe that. Um, It it was then broadly distributed because, um, this Textus Receptus, because of the invention of the movable type press. So the Textus Receptus was the first um, full, complete Greek manuscript of the Old New Testament that had, that, had, that had been written in a very long time. And then it went to the, um, the press, the printing press, and got distributed all over the place in, in large numbers. Um, when Erasmus of Rotterdam wrote that, all he could acquire to his possession were five or six partial Greek manuscripts. None of the manuscripts that he had in his possession were complete. He used what he had, and then even the Latin Vulgate, written by Jerome, to complete everything into his Greek translation. Um, None of the manuscripts that Erasmus had originated from earlier than the 12th century A.D. You follow me? He's in 1516. None of the manuscripts that he had, which were handwritten, originated from earlier than the 12th century A.D. So there was a gap of over a thousand years between Jesus' death and the death of his apostles, the last apostle, and the earliest written 
manuscript that Erasmus had in his hand. The time period that had been dominated by that entire period after 300 AD was the Latin Vulgate. Everything was in Latin. Uh, As for being a Catholic and a humanist, that's what Erasmus was. He was a Catholic and a humanist. He was also a really fine Greek linguist. And considering what he had to work with, the Textus Receptus was an excellent work. It was an amazing work. Um, Martin Luther used it as the basis for his German translation. Most of the Reformers used it on the basis, as the basis of their translations for the Reformation. Um, Erasmus, however, refused to jur- join the Reformation. He remained loyal to Rome all the way through to the end. Uh, but in creating the Textus Receptus, he relied on five or six handwritten manuscripts, again, originating all from 1200 A.D. or later. Since that time, Here's the good news. Since that time, the modern art of science and archaeology has unearthed more than 5,000 handwritten Greek manuscripts. They're dated from every century previous to Erasmus. Everything previous to 1200 A.D. So by filing these handwritten manuscripts, these 5,000 of them, filing them century by century by the dates written within them, some of them by carbon dating, they're able to place each of these manuscripts into each century previous to Erasmus. You follow me? Um, The content of these these copies is extraordinary. Uh, It's extraordinarily consistent. It is extraordinarily reliable. A person could say it's divine. It's divine at the fact that God had preserved through all of those centuries, through handwriting scribes, a consistent text of the Bible. Most reliable. It's most reliable. Um, Yet the manuscripts dated closest to the period of the apostles are regarded as most accurate. Does that make sense? The ones that were written closest to the time of the Apostles' death, earlier on than 1200 A.D., are regarded by translators as the most reliable. Here's the rub. Here's the rub. Take it or leave it. The content of the rebuke by Jesus does not exist in any of the early manuscripts. They simply read like this. Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. That's the earliest ones. In fact, that's how it's written in the modern English Standard Version. If you have that, um, that team of translators was so convinced that that phrase didn't exist in the earliest manuscripts, they simply left it out. And they added it as a footnote at the bottom. That's not my preference. The translation that I use, which is the NASB or the NASV, in that, the statement of the rebuke, it's included but then it's put in square brackets so that it draws your attention to it. I like that because it grabs my attention and I can read up on it. In addition, it also adds a footnote that says early manuscripts do not contain this bracketed portion. By comparison, the New King James Version, which I read to you earlier during the Scripture reading, is more poetic in those parts of, of, uh, of Isaiah. Um, it adds a, a teeny tiny number next to the verse 
which nobody notices that would tell you to go to the bottom of the page and reference a footnote. Um, this is the question you have. And you, you have to ask yourself this. You know, you, I'm not trying to convince you of anything. I'll, show you, I'll tell you what I do. A judgment made through haste of human intuition would conclude we are getting further and further from the original writings of the apostles over time. That would be a conclusion by haste, all right? Or through haste, that accuracy gets lost over time. Uh, copies of copies of copies of copies. That's one view. The other view is that every time the archaeologist shovel unearths another manuscript of earlier and earlier ancient manuscripts, we are actually becoming closer and closer to confidence that what we have today is, is, is the truth of God's Word. Because as they keep digging up more and more of these manuscripts that go all the way to the 2nd century A.D., what they have found is the message and the terminology and the phraseology in the Bible is consistent from beginning to end. What we have today is what the apostles wrote back then. That's the scientific and archaeological conclusion over all of these centuries. That our doctrinal statement as well affirms that we believe that, I'm not wording this word for word, but we believe that the scriptures are inerrant in the writing of the original manuscripts. And what we have are copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. We know that. Um, our theological conclusion is the overwhelming evidence of these 5,000 Greek documents, as well as tens of thousands of Latin documents and other uh, copies of the scriptures, it proves the content of the scripture has not changed. It has not changed. Um, it has been remained reliable and consistent through the centuries as preserved by God. It has now been translated into over 1,500 languages, and the message remains the same. The Bible, folks, has no aversion, has no problem with being translated, places no restrictions on being translated into all human languages. Just imagine if we had to go to a foreign land and teach those people Hebrew and Greek in order to be saved. Does that make any sense at all? No. That, that's actually more akin to Islam, actually. Islam says that the Quran can't be translated to anything except for Aramaic. That's, that's the way they function. Our Bible gets translated into all languages, that every tongue will praise Christ. Um, but the content of uh, the Bible has remained consistent. As that has happened, it appears as a very small number of statements may have crept in over time. This is one of them. This is one of them. How did it creep in if it crept in? I don't know. Maybe an overzealous scribe, maybe one that got tired. I don't know. What do we make of them? Well, fortunately... No doctrine of the church hinges on them. No doctrine of the church pivots on any of these bracketed portions. None of them states that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. In fact, none of them even make inaccurate statements about God. This one here in verse 56 says, The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. We know that's a correct statement. We know that is parallel with other passages in the Bible. That's a correct statement. The portion in verse 55 which says, You do not know what kind of spirit you are. I honestly don't know what that's supposed to mean. I don't know. 
I don't know what that means. But I do know that means James and John had the wrong attitude. They were of the wrong spirit because Jesus had to rebuke them. So so you're going to have to at some point come to grips with this because when an unbliever comes to you and says, you know, there have been additions to the Bible, you have to know what they're talking about because they normally don't. You also, here's the other thing. You also just can't stick your fingers in your ears and go na, 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 na. You you know what I mean? You can't overlook and just refuse to hear. That that doesn't further anything at all. Um, You need to know uh, what is going on, what's consistent, and what is trustworthy over the centuries. And the scripture is by all means completely trustworthy. You also can't say, you know, I just... I have my own preferred version. Like, I, I, I use the NASB 95 version. And you know what? That's, that's, that's the version. That's authoritative. And uh, no, one else can, uh, um, no, one, no one else can challenge that. You, you can't just say that. Because the Bible doesn't say that. The, the Bible in Revelation says, don't add to his word. And I can't add a doctrine on a particular translation and declare it's God's truth. That would be adding to the Word of God. So I can't do that. I can't do that. The approach I have personally chosen is to treat these disputed statements as original, but I don't use them as a foundation for any pivotal doctrines or to defend any new doctrine that someone wants to make up out of it. We are not reliant upon them for that. We can defend our faith through all of the balance of Scripture. These can merely supplement. So just by looking at verse 55, you can see for yourselves that no foundational doctrine hinges on it. That Jesus is just rebuking James and John uh, for calling down fire from heaven. For us, that's not an option. It's that simple and straightforward. What then is option two? Option two, we are told at the end of verse 56. That, that portion is in the earliest manuscripts. That says, and they went on to another village. That's what we do. We go on to another village. If you refuse service or you refused provision or someone doesn't want to work with you because of your beliefs as a Christian, you simply move on. You simply move on to another location. We endure as our Savior endured. And we recognize that we can become uh, uh, travelers on a long and lonely road. We don't get a lawyer. We don't sue somebody over not providing us a hamburger. We just move on. God will provide us a hamburger somewhere else, right? He is there for us. In fact, as we look at this in this long and lonely road, it gives a lot of explanation to the next chapter when Jesus now sends out the 70 in pairs, or 72, depending upon which manuscript you're looking at, the 70 in pairs um, out ahead of him, to see which people will receive his disciples. And the ones that will receive his disciples will receive Jesus. That starts in chapter 10. And whether or not they accept or refuse his disciples determines whether or not they will accept or refuse him. And we'll see on this long and lonely road. Let's pray. And then I'll let you all go and I'll be glad to field any questions up here afterwards. Father, oh, we're so grateful Lord, uh, as we look at your word and as we look at the, uh, the evidence 
that is astounding. Actually, it's overwhelming. We have so much evidence. It's, it, it's, it's almost a shame we have so much now, Lord, as you've provided through all of these centuries for your church. You've given us your word. You've given us uh, evidence of the truth of your word. And, Lord, you've taught us from it. You've taught us how to act. You've taught us that we're people of peace, that we love, that we're one's uh, uh, Father who will uh, refrain from getting uh, in, a, uh, in a tussle. Lord, that uh, uh, we want to spread the joy of your word and the truth of Christ and that we're peaceable and gentle and that we love not only ourselves but love those that we encounter. Lord, help us to be people of peace. Help us to be people of joy. And uh, Lord, uh, help us to be uh, good representatives of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.